0: Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas on how to lead your church into the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Now, here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian
1: Podcast. This is Lauren Richmond, Jr., and today we're welcoming Jay Kim to the show. Jay serves as the lead pastor at Westgate Church in the Silicon Valley and on the leadership team of the Regeneration Project. He has the experience of the digital church in all its splendor and writes about it in his two books, Analog Christian and Analog Church, which we'll be talking about today. Kim's writing has been featured in Christianity Today, The Gospel Coalition, Missio Alliance, and Relevant Magazine. He lives in Silicon Valley with his wife and two children. All right, welcome to the show, Jay Kim. Thanks so much for being here. Anything else yeah. you'd like our listeners to know about you?
2: No, I mean, thank you so much for having me on, Lauren. Really glad to be on and uh, hope that folks listening are are encouraged and challenged at the same time. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. Uh,
1: share, if you would, kind of about your faith journey, what that looked like initially and what that kind of looks like today.
2: Sure. Thanks for asking. I uh, grew up going to church. I'm the son of a uh, Korean immigrant mother, single mom, no siblings. So um, in immigrant contexts, the church is much more than, you know, a 75-minute, worship gathering on a Sunday, it really becomes the epicenter and and the hub of your social life. So I grew up at church all the time, three, Mm -hmm. four days a week. Um, So had a a church background, very strong church background, grateful for my upbringing. And then early on in college, um, I went through what is now, you know, a very common sort of thing for people, uh, a deconstruction of faith season. Uh, and then through a small group of guys who, um, you know, they were several years older than me, but they, they were at the church where I'd grown up. They just kept in touch with me and continued inviting me to things. And, uh, So I actually made my way back to Jesus um, through them, through those Mm -hmm. relationships and this sort of small group of guys that formed on Monday nights. We'd get together on Monday nights and hang out and talk about everything. And Mm -hmm. um, long story short, those guys were all, at the time, you know, this is in the very early 2000s, at the time they were all uh, volunteer youth ministry leaders and so i just kind of wanted to be like them so i started um leading a seventh grade boys small group at the church where i'd grown up and fell in love with that fell in love with uh not necessarily that i had any answers for them but just fell in love with the journey of asking questions with them and and um uh, that led to youth ministry, and, and now here we are, you know, 20 years later.
1: Yeah, yeah, awesome. Uh, what are what are what has been a, a spiritual practice or discipline for you that's been meaningful
2: for you? Oh, gosh, there have been so many. One that's, you know, probably more recent, and by recent I mean the last few years. I um, have made it a habit to practice the examine, you mm-hmm. know, which is this um sort of ancient ignatian practice uh saint ignatius of loyola yeah uh, founder of the jesuits and it's a very simple practice you know i'm sure many of your listeners are familiar maybe some even practice it but it's a way of um quieting down the noise of our lives on a Mm -hmm. daily basis and examining our lives uh you know, not examining it for ourselves and then presenting it to God, but really examining our life, our specific day really with God. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the practices that has been really formative for me in recent years. And um, it's a practice that I've actually practice with my family now, you know, Jenny mm-hmm. and I, my wife and I have two young children, eight and five. And mm-hmm. um, we've got this sort of like very simplified children's version of the examine that we do with them every night before bed as well. And uh so that's the first that comes to mind. It's been really transformative in my life. Two questions follow-up then. Hey, can you send me that version of your family examine?
1: Because I love that idea.
2: Oh, especially sure. How do you do that?
1: With young kids. Uh and then two more broader questions. Like I keep hearing this again and again, I think, with especially it's not so surprising when I talk to mainline Protestant leaders, but when I talk to ev- evangelical leaders, this appreciation for some of these ancient practices like examine or daily office or common prayers. What do you think that's about, like, especially in evangelical context where there's less kind of tradition, so to speak?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why these practices, whether they've been Prominent in evangelical circles or not, there is a reason why these practices have stood the test of time. Mm-hmm. It is because they tap into what is timeless. I think, yeah, you know. So we live obviously in um, in the modern West. Everything accelerates so quickly, and yeah. obviously, the first thing that comes to mind is technology. But even you know, technology's influence on us the way technology is forming us. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that pace is um, inhumane, you know, human beings are not uh, created to live at that sort of pace. We're not meant to lean um, at that sort of slant. And I think there's an exhaustion um, that's pervasive in culture today And particularly amongst, you know, to your question, I think particularly amongst more evangelical Christians, um, we have, we've been so deeply entrenched in the, sort of, you know, seeker movement of right. uh, the 80s and 90s where everything was practical. Everything was, here are the seven steps, yeah. you know, to your better life now. And they all start with the same letter or whatever. And um, fair enough. I'm not necessarily saying any of that stuff is is bad. It's sure. not bad. It's just um, been found sort of incomplete. Right. You know it's not it doesn't satisfy us at the at the sort of deep soul level um it's really you know that approach again it is helpful, but it's primarily focused on things that we can do hmm. um to you know hopefully help help cultivate and craft the sort of life we think we want. Um, But I think what these practices do is they remind us that beyond what we do, we need to pay much more careful attention to who we are and who we are becoming. Um, It's much more about presence than it is about practicality. It's much more about uh, gardening than it is about microwaving. Hmm. So the examine, for example, is not – there is no sort of end goal after mm-hmm. you move through these five beautiful movements, you know. There is no end goal other than to have examined your day with the Lord. Yeah. Um and then to come back and do it again the next day and then do it again the next day after that and to do that for a lifetime. Yeah. Uh that's really antithetical to, right. you know, like the modern world, but I think there's something really refreshing and and again something really human about it. So I think that's a part of the draw, at least it is for me having grown up in evangelical circles. Um that's been a part of the the draw.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. And as you You mentioned living in Silicon Valley. That makes like a nice transition here to our conversation and also really adds some context uh, to your book that we're talking about, Analog Church, why we need real people, places and things in the digital age. So for our listeners, like, again, you heard it. He lives in Silicon Valley area. So it's not like, Jay, you're living in like, I don't know small town midwest being like oh analog (laughs) matters like you're you're in the heart of it where it's digital and that's like i don't know if this is too strong a word but like that's the god that's the that's the idol of of that of that context i think it's fair to say right yeah that's right so i mean you're obviously swimming in it talk about like was it just seeing it play out on a day-to-day basis that really inspired you to write the book? What, what drove you there?
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, anything I do, um, that extends beyond my local context, the local church where I serve, I'm I'm a pastor. Mm -hmm. That's my primary responsibility, at least vocationally. Um, any public work that extends beyond my local context is all born out of my local context. Mm. I'm never thinking, okay, how can I write something nationally? I'm just right. thinking about our people yeah. and what they're going through. So that's really where it came from: analog church and a follow-up book I wrote um, called Analog Christian and, and other work that that I'm doing. It all just is born out of my local context. So yeah, you know, analog church came from um certainly like you said just being immersed in digital culture not not just my own sort of digital proclivities and right. you know my own addiction to my smartphone or something yeah. but i mean like watching our people who uh not only use digital devices the way the rest of the modern world does but you know our church the the place where i'm sitting right now you know my office here um we are like a 10 minute drive down the road um just that way to my right <laughs> um from apple like yeah, the main campus wow. of apple and we're another 20 minutes or so 15 20 minutes from google mm-hmm. and another you know 10 minutes after that from like meta and you know it's it's heart of silicon valley so what that means is um, an overwhelming percentage of the congregation I serve here, they work in tech or they are adjacent to right. someone like a spouse or a child or a parent who works in tech. Mm-hmm. So it's everywhere, you know, but um, it's been such a gift for me because these are men and women who are not simply using digital technology. They're the men and women who are creating the stuff, Mm -hmm. making the stuff, innovating, you know? Um, And that's, that's given me a pretty unique perspective, I think. So that's where, that's where um, both of the books came from. I, I was, again, just trying to serve and love and shepherd our people here. Many of my conversations with them would veer toward their own sort of you know, emotional, cognitive, spiritual dissonance with, you know, I'm creating this stuff, but what is it doing to people? What is it doing to me? Yeah. There's that famous story of Steve Jobs. It's not an anecdote. It's an anecdote. It's it's a real story. It was on record. It was in an interview. I forget which magazine or publication. But Steve Jobs on record um, said, um, that he did not allow his children when they were children <laughs> to use apple products because he was deeply aware of their addictive wow. properties. So that that's sobering, you know, yeah. and um and I have conversations like that with with people in our church quite often. So really that's that's where it came from. I began asking hard questions about not simply what are Digital technologies doing for us. Mm-hmm. The answer to that question is pretty easy, right? Um, but I began to really um, ask the question: How are digital technologies forming us uh, individually and as churches? Yeah, you know,
1: I feel like we could have a conversation just about writing um, it down. How are they forming us? Um, we could have a conversation just about. The dangers of digital in our, in our context, you probably seen, like I have recently, just the, I mean, it's tragic, frankly, the, the rates of mental health, uh, suffering for, for young people, especially young females. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's sobering. It is truly sobering.
2: Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, for those who are unacquainted or unfamiliar with with what you're talking about, Lauren, I would just point people to the work of um, Jonathan Haidt Mm -hmm. and um, Gene Twenge, Mm -hmm. you know, who actually work together quite a bit. Um, They've done immense amounts of research, and it seems undeniable at this point that putting smartphones and social media in particular in the hands of teenagers— is like just from a purely like health perspective, yeah, would be the equivalent of putting packs of cigarettes in their hands. Like, we might as well just tell them to go smoke cigarettes all day. Yeah. Um, it's just, dis- it's destroying generations of young people as well as all generations, but especially right. young people. <laughs> so, yeah, this is critically important for sure. So, with that scale of danger, right?
1: we go into this perhaps aware or maybe perhaps unaware of that scale of danger churches are. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And you write, uh, you you write this quote, this unchecked pursuit of relevance is changing what it means to be a community. So Mm -hmm. we're entering into this. Many churches are entering into this, this, this danger. Uh, But I I think it's fair to say like, right, there's been research because who who are the folks from Silicon Valley that I think it was like several years ago, right, that folks started speaking out, right? There was the documentary, yeah. right? So this is not like it's yep. just like, it's not like it's just been like, oh, the last year or two. Right. This has been like a several year, year thing at minimum. And even yeah. still, uh, many churches have been like, you know, it we got to pursue relevance at all costs. And and I'm, I'm really intrigued by your question about what is it doing uh, to the community Um, and changing what it means. So do you want to talk more about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's so much to say about it. But in short, I would say just on a purely ecclesiological level in terms of, you know, what we think the church is, what people in general think the church is, I think one of the ill effects of the church's unabashed, unchecked pursuit of all things digital, to mm-hmm. and then there are, these, there are these these catchphrases like we've got to maximize impact or right. you know maximize reach or something. Well, when we're not thoughtful about that, what we are unintentionally doing is teaching people and telling people. Hey, you know what the church is? The church is just a, a Christian product. Yeah. to be consumed. It's yeah. just good Christian content to be consumed. Right. And listen, I am not against good Christian content. This right. podcast is good Christian <laughs> content. I paid Jay to say that there, so I'm not <laughs> so I'm not I'm not against that, but you and I both would agree this podcast is not the church. This podcast is not. Now, you and I as brothers in the family of God, we make up a part of the church global, you know, universal. But the podcast itself is not the church. And yet, I think because the church is so sort of... I would say recklessly, and by the church, I just mean generally, not all churches, right? right? But um, generally, the modern Western, particularly the evangelical church, has so recklessly leaned into all things digital without being as thoughtful as I think we need to be. Mm -hmm. Um, We have taught people... That the church, to go to church or to be part of a church, simply means to be a passive consumer yeah. who consumes lots of Christian content. Um, but that's not the church. The church is a people to whom you belong. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a people to whom um, you commit on a familial level, you know. And uh, that—that's a—that's a tragic sort of misunderstanding that's unfolding. Um, and I think I think there are ways out, though, you know, so I'm really hopeful as I watch uh, local churches begin to make some adjustments and changes, so let's talk about that that way out because I imagine that that pressure
1: to keep up, and this is not in wider society, but the pressure in a church to keep up when when church folks are essentially preconditioned to be as consumers looking for the latest and greatest production and teaching and Content, like you said, um, how do you, as a pastor, how do you, as someone who has influence over church staff and church leaders, other church pastors and leaders, how do you, what do you say to them when, you know, when that temptation is just to keep chasing and producing better, more relevant? content production yeah. like, etc i mean like i'm all for excellence like i want to do a good job yeah in my yep. when i preach like uh i want the service to flow well but also yep. like i think we both know like chasing excellence can be like a just a per- perpetual uh motion machine right
2: yeah yeah there's a couple of thoughts that come to mind one more general and mo- one more practical so First, generally, you're asking the question. You know, for me in my role as a pastor here at our church, what do I do?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, we talk a lot at a team level about the dichotomy. It's not really a dichotomy, but certainly the 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 difference between faithfulness and fruitfulness. Yeah, that's good. And what we mean by that here at at our church at a staff level. I tell our crew all the time, listen, God's calling on us is to be faithful. It is not to be fruitful. And what that does not mean is that we don't want to be fruitful. (laughs) Like, of course, right? of course we want to be effective in what we do. Of course we want to pursue excellence. But we want to pursue excellence as an expression of faithfulness. Mm -hmm. We think that faithfulness means putting our best foot forward and making effort, and doing our part, and sacrificing and working hard and all of those things, you know, the, the sort of normal common things. But I think there's a danger when we begin to believe the lie that we have actual control over, um, fruitfulness. And by fruitfulness, what I mean is like the standard metrics, are we, are we growing by X percent all the time every year? And, and I don't, I don't want to I don't want to, like, throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'll, I'll tell you, like, we keep an eye on those things for sure. Like, it's not like we don't pay attention. Right. Like, we are paying attention. Like, how are we financially? Are people engaging? Are people taking— the thing we look at most is not attendance at our church, actually. It's um, engagement. It's It's called our— our pathway to belonging belonging Mm -hmm. language is really big for us so Mm -hmm. we really do pay attention like are people finding smaller pockets of community where they can really be known and know one another and so that would be a small group or a mid-sized group or counseling or therapy or spiritual direction or mentoring or any number of opportunities we offer we keep an eye on those things but we also tell our team listen at the end of the day those metrics are beyond our control. Mm -hmm. Like for a person to take an actual step, one to to show up to church or two to join a small group or serve or give or whatever, like honestly at the end of the day, the spirit of God has to move in that person's heart and mind to compel them to take that action. So we're not responsible and it, the reason that's helpful is because when we, when we put the burden of fruitfulness upon ourselves, that's when we can get, it can get really dangerous. Yeah. Like, yeah. Man, we gotta, we gotta, you know, the metrics don't look right. We gotta have more Instagram followers or we gotta have a better, whatever YouTube page or, you know, whatever it might be. We right. think that that's the answer to the solution when ultimately the answer to uh, the answer to the problem the solution to the problem is just. God has to move in a person's heart and mind. And our job is to be faithful to the calling, to remove as many barriers as possible, Mm -hmm. to be as compelling and inviting and welcoming as possible so that when that person is ready, um, they are able to take whatever next step God's calling them to take. So that's more general. I think practically the way it plays out for us and this is actually in the book Analog Church, Um, we have a paradigm here when it comes to all things digital because we're not Luddites. Like, I'm not... Right,
1: like he's wearing a... Know, I don't, he's got some earpods right now in his ear, so like, yeah, this I've is got, a guy who's not, like, afraid of technology.
2: No, no. I mean, you and I are having this conversation, you know, in two different states right. because of technology because we have the internet and I have a laptop and so do you and you've got this nice podcasting microphone and you know what I mean? Like, I'm not a Luddite. Right. I'm not, like, living on a farm churning my own butter or something. Although if that's, you know, the life got Called GT sounds really beautiful. Yeah. But uh we tell our team and, and we we live by this um paradigm that digital informs, but analog transforms. Yeah. And we tell our people that all the time. That um when we're asking the question, okay, we're gonna use a digital medium. To do something,
0: mm-hmm.
2: whether it's social media or our website or, the you know, YouTube, whatever it might be, text messaging, wh- whatever, email. We always say, okay, if we're using that medium, we have to understand we're using that medium primarily to inform our people. Yeah. Give them the information they need um, to be able to do the thing that they might need to do. But we also tell our team transformation is always analog. It always happens in embodied, incarnational ways. So where that matters and where that it has been so helpful for us, that paradigm, um, when, we, when we map that paradigm onto the decisions that we make, the decision-making process and priorities become really clear because it is really clear. Like, why do we exist as a church? Is it to inform people mm. or is it to join God in the work of transformation? Yeah, and unequivocally, without hesitation, the answer from everybody on our team, of course, is transformation. I'm not working here because I want to spew a lot of info to people. Right. I'm working here because I want to see God transform lives. And so that very naturally points us toward Prioritizing more analog, embodied in person incarnational um realities,
1: yeah, yeah, that's great. thanks for sharing that. I love that I- analog as embodied. so I want to shift gears and ask you write about the sermon being a transcendent act, and i I ask this as someone who who really loves preaching um, both the preparation, you know, diving into a text. Looking for themes, praying, preparing, and then of course, presenting. So I think there's something powerful when you use those words about this sermon being a transcendent act. So share more about what you mean by that.
2: Yeah, I think again, it sort of comes back to uh you know um, the the delta really, or the difference between information and transformation.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I think. Again, in the digital age, because we have these these digital platforms where we can post sermons, Mm -hmm. we have unintentionally taught our people and preachers have come to believe, whether they call it this or not, we've come to believe that the sermon is content
0: Mm -hmm. um,
2: and that we're crafting really good content for, you know, people. Uh, But the sermon is not primarily content. I, I really do believe that the sermon is um an exchange. You know, it's it's a it's a relational exchange between preacher and people. And um when we begin to see the sermon that way, it changes everything about now. What I'm not saying is like we should not put sermons online. I mean, we our church yeah, yeah. has a podcast feed so that folks who missed it can, you know go go back and catch up and and all of that. But ultimately, the sermon is an exchange between the preacher and the people. So it's not just the content that I express with my words, it's my embodied presence mm-hmm. and the embodied presence of the congregation right. in return. And it's what the Spirit of God does in the midst of our sort of communal experience of the Word of God coming alive in our midst um, Dallas Willard once said that the most important thing that happens in a sermon happens, um, between the moment that the words leave the preacher's mouth and before they enter the listener's ears. And what he meant by that was that it is the most important thing in the sermon is what the spirit of God does in the exchange. Yeah, And so I think as preachers and teachers, we have to begin reorienting, um, You know, how we think about the sermon uh, along those lines. And there's a real gift in that for the preacher, right? That it's tremendously freeing, right? It's not, it's again, it's again, you know, the difference between faithfulness and fruitfulness. It's really not up to you. Yeah. Like if that person on Sunday said yes to Jesus, it was not because of your sermon, right? It was because the Spirit of God chose to use some of the things you said to speak to that person in a way that they really needed to to hear. Um, that's not you. That's the spirit of God. You just simply were the faithful vessel through which God did the work that only he can do. But you also have to be the faithful vessel that is embodied in the midst of your people um, so that God can use all of that mm-hmm. uh, to do transformative work.
1: Yeah cuz like the the preparation is part of that faithfulness like the faithfulness of digging into the text and yeah and so on and so forth. So this this is going to be kind of an obvious question but I'm I'm trying to to t- t- get at a broader point here. We're both coming from the perspective that there's something more. Like we you've made repeated uh references to God's spirit to the Holy Spirit. We live in a we live in a world, we live in a context right now I don't know if you've studied the work of of Charles Taylor. Uh, I've studied uh, someone who's written a lot about it, Andrew Root, I don't know if you're familiar with that name, who really writes mm-hmm. about an imminent frame um, mm-hmm. of how we're just kind of in this closed world where most of humanity, at least in in the Western world, lives as if, like, it's only what we can see and t- taste and touch, you know, the five senses. Mm-hmm. Um, How do you, like, when we talk about the sermon being a transcendent act, when we talk about the importance of these embodied human connections, like how do we hold space for the possibility of transcendence, like especially in your context where it's so much about these things, these smartphones and these digital connections?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Those who are unfamiliar with, you know, the work of Charles Taylor and, and Andrew Root um, who I, I love his work has been so helpful to me as as almost like a, a translator of Taylor mm-hmm. in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know it's interesting that the the concept of of the imminent frame it really leads to. I mean, in in some ways, it is the paradigm of secularism, uh, and it leads to a sort of hopelessness, you know. And I think we're we're seeing the sort of limitations of secularism today. It's really, to me, it's actually really hopeful sort of season for Hmm. for the gospel in that that way. Um, You know, imminent frame was Charles Taylor's phrase for the secular ideology that reality is just totally purely completely physical and material mm-hmm. that there there is you know no possibility of the spiritual or supernatural no possibility of of real transcendence um you know and he describes it in a secular age i, I pulled up the quote here um cuz it's one of my favorites he describes it in his book a secular age charles taylor does he 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 describes the imminent frame as the the change that takes us from a society in which it was virtually impossible not to believe in God. Right. To one in which faith, even for the staunchest believer, yep. is just one human possibility yep. among others. Yep. And if you just think historically, it makes me think of like C.S. Lewis's phrase chronological snob- snobbery mm-hmm. that every generation believes that they are the most, the brightest and the most brilliant right. generation right. ever. That everybody before us was just so dumb um but if you can remove yourself from the absolute egomaniacal pride of chronological snobbery mm-hmm. then what you begin to realize just in terms of time is that the overwhelming majority of human history people lived mm-hmm. in again societies according to taylor where it was virtually impossible not to believe in god (laughs) like it was the assume now which god and all of that you know was to be debated but it 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 is a very recent phenomenon that we have this sense um that we have made sense of the cosmos Mm -hmm. but what uh you know astrophysicists will tell you today, if you were to talk to the, the best and the brightest in astrophysics, they would tell you, we know nothing. Hmm. <laughs> like, essentially, we are just scratching the surface. Like, we are putting names and labels on things that our satellites and telescopes are showing us. We're putting names and labels on them just so we have some sort of framework for beginning to understand. Yeah, But we are just scratching the surface. We live as these tiny specks in these giant, You know, like balls of rock, like hurtling through space. I mean, it's just unfathomable. And um, I think for preachers, we need to recapture curiosity and imagination. Mm. Uh, You know, I, I think a lot about the Reformation and things like Gutenberg's printing press All wonderful gifts to to, um, Christendom, for sure, in many ways. But one of the things it did was um, we have elevated the life of the mind, which I am all for. I mean, my default is to live in my own thoughts. And I would say my struggle is to take that journey from my head to my heart. So this is self-indictment here, but um, we need to recapture Uh, curiosity and imagination and that sort of posture of humility that um, we live in an enchanted world, which is another Taylor um, phrase, right? We need to re-enchant ourselves and the world. That if there is a God and he truly is God, then to believe that we might make sense of him um, we would essentially be saying he is not God. Yeah. You know, God cannot possibly make sense because God is infinite, whereas we are finite human creatures, human beings. And, um, you know, uh, G.K. Chesterton, the British writer, mm-hmm. he, he famously once wrote, I think it's an orthodoxy, and I'm paraphrasing him here. This isn't exact, but essentially he says, um, it is the logician the person who is all about logic who tries to he says the poet gets his head into the clouds mm-hmm. and then he says but the logician the person who is all about logic right. is the one who tries to get the cloud it, the clouds into his head <laughs> and it is his head that breaks yeah you know, And as preachers, I think we need to lift our people into the clouds rather than trying to shove the clouds into their heads because it, it'll it break. Our heads will break. Um, and I think that needs to be a, a sort of re- reintegration that needs to happen, not just in our preaching and teaching, but in the way we think about what it means to be followers of Jesus.
1: Yeah, I love that image. I love that image, lifting them into the clouds. Well, let me ask one more question here before we take a break. Um, uh, To bring it practical, you have some analog ideas, or at least as I'm interpreting them, analog ideas in the book. Uh, And one I think, assuming I'm remembering correctly, is you have this idea of like reading through scripture, like out loud for a long, I don't know if you recommend like reading a whole, a whole book of the Bible or epistle. And it really struck me like, you know, when, for example, Paul the apostle would write his, uh, his correspondence, right, to these churches in Asia Minor, right, or wherever. Like they would be read aloud. Um, and certainly for hundreds of years, especially with low literacy, right, in, in different contexts, the only way people encountered the words of scripture were audibly. So talk about, I don't know analog ideas that maybe you've done with your church that you want to try and and like is there any like the I guess it's a three part question like is there any going back to as you
2: say grandma's church? Mm, yeah. Um, like you said, I mean, for the majority of human history, human beings lived in a in an illiterate culture Mm -hmm. very few people were able to read now i'm grateful for literacy literacy rates increasing i'm not against reading you know but far from it i wouldn't write books if i didn't want people to read um but one of the things it's done is uh it has unintentionally taught us that the bible is a personal individual text Mm. um You know, I was just on a trip last week and, uh, in a different country actually with my family and we get to our hotel room and we open the little nightstand drawer and there is a Bible in the language of that country. I mean, we've got Bibles everywhere, you know, but they're rarely read. And when they are read, they're read individually and they're read very, um, They're read in these, like, sort of bits and pieces. That's a whole other conversation, too. You know, when we added chapters and verses, we really sort of chopped things up. It wasn't until just a few hundred years ago that you know, the phrase John Mm 3.16 made any sense. Before that, there was no 3.16. There was only the gospel according to John. And you might need to say like, hey, you know that one section pretty early on when John says, God so loved the world. You know, there was no 3.16. right? But now there is. Now there is. So now you can open your Bible and Mm -hmm. literally just read John 3.16. But originally there's not a single single book of the Bible that was written with that understanding that this text would be chopped up into bits and pieces. These writers wrote extended pieces. I mean, the Psalms would be the closest, right? Yeah, they, yeah. they were these short truncated songs and poems, but or the proverbs, right. or something like that. But um so I do think we need to recapture. Um, scripture reading the way it was originally intended, meaning one, we need to learn how to read it communally mm-hmm. because they are primarily communal texts. Two, we need to learn not just to read the Bible, but we need to experience it the way many of the, the texts were originally intended, which was for a people to gather and to hear it, to hear it aloud, mm-hmm. read aloud by one person. Uh And two, we need to learn to read it the way it was originally meant to be read or experienced, which is in extended sections, hmm. right, so you think about paul's letters yeah and and again, I'm not against this. we just did you know uh you know we do teaching series on on books of the Bible um in a few months, we'll do a series on the book of Philippians, which is a Paul, a letter that Paul wrote to the early Christians in the city of Philippi. Now, when we do that series for like six Sundays in a row, we'll just take certain sections and teach through them. Mm-hmm. But that's not the way Paul intended that letter to be experienced. Yeah. When the first Christians in Philippi heard that letter read aloud, they heard it read aloud from beginning to end, you know? So much like you typically would not watch a movie, at least the first time you watch right, it, right in 10 minute increments. You wouldn't go to a two hour movie and just, you know, I'm gonna watch the first 10 minutes today and then maybe next week I'll watch the next 20. You wouldn't do that. Um, it'd be so disjointed, you'd forget, you wouldn't right? Like you wouldn't be able to follow along. And and most importantly, that's not the intention of the filmmaker. Right. The filmmaker film that film for you to sit for two hours and experience the, the whole thing in its entirety. And so it is with much of the Bible. And I think we need to recapture that.
1: Yeah. I love that. Well, the book is analog church, why we need real places or excuse me, Why we need real people, places and things in the in the digital age. I really, really enjoyed reading the book. Like he said, like Jay said, he's got, um, Analog Christian and other works coming out that I'd recommend. Let's take a quick break, and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Jay Kim, and Jay, appreciate the conversation. Uh, really, really appreciate your perspectives here. Uh, these closing questions always invite folks to take these as seriously or as, as not as you'd like to. Uh, but if you're hope for a day, what would that day look like for you?
2: Anything you'd want to accomplish? Something like that. Oh my gosh! If I was pope for a day, holy smokes! I'm gonna need more time to think about that. All right, all right, we'll come back. <laughs> I to feel them. like there are, it's a global proportions question. My initial answer is like much more self-serving. I would just sort of walk around the premises and, you know, try to know what an average day for the Pope looks like. So I guess that's my answer, sort of selfishly. I just have no idea yeah. what a normal day for a Pope looks like. So I think I try to live as normal of a day as possible. That's fair.
1: Um a theologian okay. or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life.
2: Oh my goodness. Are you are we talking like biblical figures or just historical sort of You can define it church. as how you want.
0: Mm.
1: Well, I mean, like, man, that, you know, like for me, like Elijah is such an intriguing figure. Like, I could, I could hang out with Elijah, even though he'd probably be kind of scary, right? Like, you know.
2: Yeah, that's so good. I, I mean, I don't know. This is such a cheap answer, but I'd have to say the Apostle Paul. You know, I've just, I've, I've immersed myself in his words for so long so deeply I'd love to talk to him about it
1: yeah 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 um, what do you think history will
2: remember from our current time and place Um, the smartphone and what the smartphone how the smartphone changed humans yeah
1: do, do you think like this is, this is off script here but do you think like short of like you know Short of some kind of, like, electronic meltdown, right? Like, is there... We're never losing these things, right? Like, we're never getting rid of them. No, I
2: don't think so. No, I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, they'll evolve, but... Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we're losing them.
1: Um, what are your hopes for the future of Christianity?
2: Um, it's not really a hope, it's a confidence, but that the words of Christ and Matthew continue on as they have for 2,000 years, you know, that not even the gates of hell will prevail um, against the bread of Christ. And uh, yeah, well, that the church long outlives all of us for, sh- for sure.
1: You know. well, let me say this to your point then, <laughs> partly to defend my question, partly to amen what you said is I define hope like the words of Henry now and that hope is built Christian hope is built on God's, uh, God's action in the past and the trust that, uh, as God has said, God will do continue in the future. So, oh, yeah, appreciate, appreciate that answer. Um, where can people connect with you, find out more about you, get your book, all that stuff.
2: Yeah. Thanks for asking. I have a little website. It's just thinks dot com. And, uh, most of my work is there and, um, my email is there as well. So if anyone wants to reach out, happy to chat. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Uh, I'm just going to pull this off the top of my head
1: here. Last teaser question, cause you're in Silicon Valley. Like what's the latest, what's the latest buzz
2: trend tech item you're hearing about coming out in the future? Anything you got? Oh gosh. No, I don't have any insider info on products and stuff, but certainly this isn't just true in Silicon Valley, but it's uniquely true here. All the conversation is about AI mm. and what it's doing and what it could potentially do, not just for us, but to us. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's all the buzz, all the rage right now. Yeah. I'm working on, I'm working on another episode,
1: uh, on that for sure in the church, with that There's plenty to talk about there. So, Jay, I really appreciate the conversation. I really appreciate the book. Really recommend it for folks. And uh, I always leave folks with a word of peace. Uh, So may
0: God's peace be with you.
2: Mm, Thank you. And also with you.
0: Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul roe Thanks, and go in peace.